Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. <clears throat> For the past two summers, um, we have had a summer psalm series for our preaching. And, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, we don't actually have a plan for that this summer. But I was, uh, when I was asked to preach this past week, I thought, you know what? I've really enjoyed doing this this past two summers, having the psalm series throughout the summer. And so I thought, I'm just going to pick up where we left off. And I can't promise that the other pastors will pick it up where I leave off today. Um, but maybe they will. I don't know. Uh, but we're going to go, we're going to look today at Psalm 21. And isn't God kind to us in giving us our musicians? They said it wasn't that sweet. Very sweet. <clears throat> okay, if you've got a Bible, please open it up to Psalm 21. Or of course, you can follow along that giant screen behind me. Um, let's read now Psalm 21. For the choir director, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength." We will sing and praise your power. <clears throat> now, as it says, this psalm was written by David. Uh, David was a king over the nation of Israel thousands of years ago, and the Bible recounts many of David's heroic exploits, and we learn that David led the Israelites in battle many times against uh, enemies, God had given them the command to conquer uh, surrounding nations, and so he was busy about that work. <clears throat> now, David had many sins, which we also read about in the Bible, uh, but God used him to expand his kingdom and to, to help it reach the glory that it would attain under his son, King Solomon. Now, in Psalm 20, directly before this psalm that we're, I'm preaching on today, uh, Psalm 20 is, is all a request, a plea, a petition to God. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but you get the idea of it from the first verse. He writes, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. 
May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. So you can kind of see these two Psalms in tandem. Psalm 20, David is making a plea to God, is requesting, making a request of God. In Psalm 21, he's praising God, exulting in God's sure victory. Now, throughout the Psalms, David is uh, regularly uh, pointing to Jesus Christ, right? We, we look at the Psalms and we, we can see in, in many places how they point to what Jesus Christ would do in the future and what he was like, his character and his actions. Um, and so when we read the Psalm, it's, it, it the Psalms, we can, one of the ways that we can read them is to always be thinking about how they are helping us understand who Jesus was and what he did. And so it is in this Psalm, uh, verse 1, for instance, it begins, O Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad, and in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. And indeed, in Hebrews, later in the New Testament, it's, it says that Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus rejoiced to see the great salvation of God. In verse 4, it says, He asked life of you, uh, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. You gave it to him, to the king. Jesus also was raised from the dead. His resurrection is the Father's stamp of approval on His Son. Jesus is now our ever-living King. Verse 5 says, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon Him. No man in history has sunk lower than Jesus Christ. Jesus was abandoned by His closest friends. He was abused. He was tortured. He was murdered. And yet, the very valley of despair that Jesus had to walk through makes his triumph all the more glorious. His death, burial, and victory over the grave was the Father's plan of salvation, and Jesus is the one who gets all the glory. Verse 6 says, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. It's clear from his time on earth that there was nothing that Jesus loved more than to be in the presence of his Father. He loved to do the will of his Father. He was delighted to be with him. In fact, when Jesus was a boy, uh, he's found in the temple, and and he says, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? Jesus delighted to do the will of the Father. There are many more examples that we can, of, uh, can look to in the Psalms if we were to take the time of how they point to who Jesus was, what he did, what he was like. We've only skimmed a few, um, but the Psalms, as the, even as they do point to Jesus, they, that's not, they're not only about Jesus, right? This is a Psalm written by David, who was an actual physical king <clears throat> over a physical kingdom, and we can assume that he's writing about himself also. Now, this makes us very uncomfortable. His words about his own thoughts and feelings here make us, they offend us. We think, uh, and uh, because they offend us, because they make us uncomfortable, we think that we should simply dismiss them. 
But if we spiritualize the Psalms and we say that they only ever point to Jesus and never uh, to uh, an actual physical person, then we've lost a great deal of the benefit of the Psalms because a great deal of the benefit of the Psalms are, are, is that they are there to teach us how to think and how to feel. We will miss, if we over-spiritualize them and say that they are only ever about Jesus Christ, we're going to miss their application to us. We refuse to use them, and the reason we do this, you know, there's a lot of ways you can come up with all kinds of highfalutin, maybe theological reasons why you would only ever spiritualize the Psalms, but I think the reason we we do this, really, is because we don't actually want to obey God. Um, We refuse to use them because they show uh, also, not only do we not only, do we not Not only do we want to not obey God, but they also show the poverty of our own affections, of our own feelings, of our own loves and hates. Uh, They they reveal what's actually going on inside of us, and we're very uncomfortable with that. If you ever watch children, they have a very hard time uh, guarding what they actually feel and think inside of them, right? I think in my case of my son Justice, if you've ever been around him, he's just a completely open book. You know exactly what he's thinking and feeling all the time, right? And as we grow older, as we become adults, we get much sneakier about this. We hide what, our, what we're thinking and feeling, and we become hypocrites often. Um, <clears throat> but David here is putting his feelings right out there, and um, the first thing that smacks us in the face is how closely David identifies with God. Right, and again, this, this makes us feel very uncomfortable. Uh, verse five sums it up best, I think. It says, his glory, that is the glory of the king, speaking of himself, his glory is great through your, through God's salvation. Splendor and majesty you, God, place upon him. Now what's offensive about that? Why does that make us feel uncomfortable? Well. You know, if you can imagine talking to someone about this, they might say, well, what are you, insane? Or maybe, maybe imagine David having a conversation with someone about this, a fellow king or something like that. What, what would the king say? He would say, are you insane, David? What do you think? Do you think God is on your side? I mean, how delusional can you be? What kind of a fundamentalist whack job are you? Right? You must be delusional. You must be crazy. And this, a similar kind of sentiment uh, appears, I think, when if you, if you watch the news, um, when prayer is mocked in the news. Have you ever seen that happen before? Some tragic event happens and, and people make mention of prayer and the idea of prayer is mocked as if, as, if it's, as if it's ridiculous to think that you could actually pray to God and that he would hear you. Um, and so, so, yeah, in our culture today, it's seen as crazy, insane that you're out to lunch if you think that you can side with God. But consider the following phrase. Have you, there's another phrase that, I, that came to my mind um, that's often also in the news, and it's the phrase, the wrong side of history. How many of you have heard that phrase, right? When, uh, it's usually used by a politician. Uh, when a politician wants to, in a very high-handed way, say, you're an idiot, stop doing that, you should really do what I think is right, uh, they use this phrase. They say, you know, the Republicans or, or the Democrats, one side or the other, 
are, their opponents, their opponents are on the wrong side of history. You shouldn't do what, what they're saying. We shouldn't put in place their policies. We should put in place my policies because what? The, what they don't say is that they happen to be on the right side of history, right? <clears throat> so, and, and that is no less a grandiose or cosmic claim than to say that, uh, than to identify with God. Does this make sense? It's the same idea, and in fact, unless you are a committed nihilist, and unless you believe that life is meaningless and that you can't know truth and that there's just no way to know anything about anything, which I don't actually believe anyone really believes, uh, but unless you want to try to say that, everyone makes cosmic claims. Everyone believes that they are, what they're doing is on the right side of history. What, they, what they're doing is what God would have them do, Right? Um, so I want to, I want to encourage you that when you're mocked, if you're ever mocked with, uh, because you identify with God, it's, it's, uh, it's, it should get no purchase with you. Everybody makes cosmic claims about what they believe is right and what they believe they should do. And it's no less a cosmic claim to say, I believe in God. I want to do what God would have me do. And so really, if we, if we think about it, um, of course we want to identify closely with God, right? What in the world are we here for if not to identify with God? What's the whole point of this church, uh, of, of having services, of being a Christian, if it's not to, to, to walk with God? That's the whole point, right? That's the whole point. And so the reason really that we feel embarrassed or, or we might feel shame to publicly say that I am on God's side or that I want to be on God's side is not because we're humble, which of course is uh, the charge against us, right? If you say that you're on God's side, they're gonna say you're, must, you're delusional, you're proud, you're arrogant. That's such an arrogant thing to say. Well, actually, no, it's not. It's because the reason the, reason, the real reason that we're embarrassed to publicly say that is because we're uh, actually worried about what others will think of us, right? Uh, <clears throat> if God has given us his word and has told us what to think, what to do, then it doesn't, it's not humility to go against that, to, to not identify with him. It's, it's the very height of arrogance. <clears throat> and so to identify with God in the way that David does here uh, to do that is mocked truly because what it really is is a sincere confession of Christian faith. To say that you identify with God is simply to say, I'm a Christian in such a way that you mean it, that people recognize that you actually mean it, right? It's saying, I'm a Christian like you mean it. Of course, we can be presumptuous. Of course, wicked men can use God's name for their own selfish gain. That's, you know, this is no denial of that. But why should that keep us from having faith, for trusting in God's word that what he promises he will do? Let God be found true, though every man a liar, as the word says. <clears throat> so first and foremost, we identify with God. That's the whole purpose of being a Christian, right? There's, there's nothing else beside that. Then the next question comes, do you rejoice in God's strength the way that David does here? 
Verse one again says, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. Recently I've been watching the World Cup and it's amazing to watch people from all over the world rejoice at at how well their teams do, right? Now I know this sports analogy is used a lot, uh, but it's, it's there because it's so helpful to us. It's helpful. When we compare our zeal for sports to our zeal for God, we know that something is wrong. We, we know that the, the gig is up, and, you know, if you're not into sports, fine. Put in whatever it is. You're, what is it that gets you up in the morning? What is it that gets you singing? What is it that gets you sitting on the Internet researching something or looking at something or studying something? You know, what do you spend your time on? Is, is your zeal for those things any, anywhere at all near your zeal for God? For most of us, for many of us, the answer is no, right? You know, writing, preparing this sermon is very convicting for me as I recognize my lack of zeal, my coolness in my, in my affections for God. And um, <clears throat> I want to warn us as we recognize our sin in this regard, I want to warn us against the wrong response, because it's always a temptation, especially, I think, in this church. It's good and proper to recognize your, your lack of zeal, and that's my goal today, is to help us see our lack of zeal for God, our lack of love for God. I think the Psalm, David, shows that to us. But our response shouldn't be to go circling down the drain, right? and into a pit of despair and hopelessness. This is not the right response. If that's your answer to to this welcome, to this charge, then then it's exactly wrong. I've noticed um, when I attend both services that uh, something funny kind of happens. It's it's, uh, when I have the privilege of going to both services on Sunday morning, I, I find myself ready, more ready in the second service to, to worship, to sing, to listen than I was in the first service because of, and so because of the way that the first service kind of acts like an appetizer, right? It's almost like it gets you warmed up. And that got me thinking that um, don't be discouraged when you recognize in yourself your lack of zeal, your lack of, uh, your lack of love for God. You should, you should recognize it, but it should point you not to yourself, but to Christ, right? It should point you to Jesus that you might turn to him and, and, and have your affections stirred up. And there's many things that God has given us uh, to us to, to, have those, to have our affections stirred up, to, to have us have our feelings stirred so that they are in the right place. You know, in, our, in this church, how can we not be thankful to God for our musicians who have given us all kinds of wonderful music to help us uh, stir our affections for him? In the mornings, you know, how many, of you, how many of us have a habit of reading a psalm or praying that we might have our affections stirred in the morning uh, as we go about our day to think on God and his goodness? <clears throat> Consider again the posture of someone watching their favorite sports team, right? When you're watching your favorite sports team, your eyes are intent on the ball. You're not, your eyes aren't wandering off somewhere else. And it, it made me think of the way that we can, as a church, 
have our eyes, are, are our eyes trained for what God is doing in this world? Think of the encouragement that that would be as if, if we had our eyes trained to see and to notice the way that God has worked in our family, maybe, or in our city, or in our marriage. <clears throat> if we have our eyes trained to, to watch God and to see how he is working in, in our lives and in the lives of those around us, uh, we, will, we will rejoice. We will take joy in, in what God is doing. Even our confession of this sin forces us to turn our eyes away from ourselves and to look to Jesus Christ and his great salvation and rejoice. So don't spiral down. Look to God and be uh, vivified, be encouraged as David calls us to be encouraged. Now Psalm 21 uh, pivots, I think, on verse 7. It's, verse 7 is kind of like a fulcrum. Uh, <clears throat> It says, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. The first six verses talk about the glories of God and his deliverance and his salvation, and then he takes a moment and pauses and, 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 and says, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken, and he, he casts a glance at the things that might cause you to be shaken, at those who are shaken, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. Verses 8 to 12 are all about God's enemies and those that God intends to shake. But we have to pause here and on, on verse 7, and we look one way and we look, the, look another. And my question to you today is, do you trust in the Lord? Is he your trust? Can you expect the loving kindness, do you believe that the loving kindness of God is for you? This is what he promises. Are you easily shaken by the winds of life? I, uh, I love the image, uh, the idea that God has given each of us a soul and there is the reality that there is nothing on the outside of our lives that necessarily can touch our soul. And I'm not talking about some kind of Zen Buddhism thing where we retreat into ourselves. But what I'm saying is that throughout the ages, Christians testify that even when things are most dark and everything seems to be going to hell, literally, that Christians are able to turn to God and find peace. How is that possible? How is that even possible? And that, that's possible because of their faith in God, that God will care for them even when the winds of life or the storms of life are blowing all around them. Are you easily shaken by those storms? We have to ask ourselves, what is it that we think is going to save us? You know, many of us um, are unwilling to take the time to take a whole day, God, God calls us to take a day to worship him, to be with his people. And many of us are unwilling to set aside our work even for one day in the week so that we may worship him. Do you think your time is going to save you? Do you think that extra work is going to save you? What about your money? Do you, do you spend a lot of time looking at your bank account, storing it up because you're trying to save yourself, make sure that you can rest easy? Is it, do, you, do you think that your money is going to save you? 
What about your talents and your abilities? You think you can always fall back on them, or maybe your brain. You know, many students who are smart can just wait, you know, coast through, and they don't have to worry about studying and whatever, because so, they always fall back on the, their ability to just crank it out at the last minute. What is it that you think is going to save you? We grasp at those things. But when the real storm comes, there will be nothing but God to save you. And so we turn now to verses 8 through 12. These also offend us greatly. Maybe this is the thing in this psalm that offends us the most, right? The idea that God would have enemies. How is it possible that God would have enemies? How can God have enemies? Those who would deny that God has enemies uh, are all around us, but um, our God is a personal God. He's got a particular character. He has a personality, though that word is, I think, too limiting for God. It makes me feel uncomfortable to even use it. But the point is, he's, a pers- he's personal. He's, he's not, God is not some impersonal force of nature right? He's, he's personal. And we can find out what he's like, what God is like from his word. This is the point. This is the point. This is why he's given us his word, so that we can know him and obey him. And if we look at it from that light, if we consider that God has shown us what he is like from his word, then obviously there are many who oppose him. We have to accept that. We have to acknowledge that. Many people Uh, oppose the God who is revealed in the Bible. There are many who oppose Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. Many people throughout the world throw scorn on Jesus and on his words. If someone can be with God, as I was talking about earlier, it must be possible also to be against him. You might criticize what I'm saying and say, well, okay, again, this psalm is written by David. He was a king of a physical nation thousands of years ago, and so he's talking about his country, his people, and it has no application to us. This is just about David and the Israelites, and, it's not, and things are different now. Well, it's true. Things are very different now, but what was then uh, for the nation of Israel, God said he, he put his special, pl- uh, his special sign of approval on the nation of Israel, and God has now given that to his church. It's not just for the Israelites, but it is now all, for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And what is the point of being a part of the church of Jesus Christ if we don't believe that, right? What's the point? Of course we believe that. That's the whole point. Now, it's true, God, and it's not only true, it's very true. It's delight, I'm delighted to say that it's true that God is in the business of making his enemies his friends, right? This is what God has done. This is the whole point of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent Jesus to make his enemies his friends. Isaiah 1 says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. What a sweet promise. Romans 5 says, for if while we, we, us in this room, were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There is no one who comes to Jesus who was not formerly his enemy, 
right? God is in the business of making his enemies his friends. And yet, even as scripture is clear that this right now, today is the day of salvation. Today, we live in a time of grace where God has opened uh, the passage to a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Today, we live in that time. Even so, God has promised in his word that those who do not repent and kiss the son will not receive mercy but judgment and wrath on the final day at the end of time. So the question is the same as above. If you walk with God, your friends will be his friends and your enemies will be his enemies. Think of it like this. Consider a man and his wife, right? The couple love each other. The man loves his wife, cares for her. Let's say she's in a room and some other man comes in and is nasty to her, treats her poorly, thinks she's a nobody, dismisses her. Uh, What do you think that, what do you think, and then her husband comes in, right? Her husband comes in. How do you think her husband will, what will his attitude be towards that man? What will be his attitude if that man even tries to uh, cozy up to the husband and, and flatter him and say, oh, you're great, right? The husband will not be happy. He will not be his friend. And this is the way that God, it, it, this is no different with God. The church is the bride of Christ. The church throughout the whole world is Christ's bride. And why would we think that God would be pleased with us if we refused to identify with his son, his church, and his people? It is not humility to act like God or the church or Jesus don't have enemies. The truth is that we are simply busy making sure that no one is our enemy, right? We want to be liked by everybody, and this is only a demonstration of our cowardice and faithlessness. David did not live like that. The emotions, the feelings that David demonstrates in Psalm 21 are not like that. In 2 Timothy it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, what does the passage say about God's enemies? Well, first of all, God's enemies will be found. There is no hiding from God, and we like to try to hide in many ways, right? We're like the child who closes their eye and says, you know, uh, believes that their mommy or daddy can't see them because they can't see mommy or daddy, right? They think that just because they close their eyes that no one can see them. Well, we we do the same thing with our money, uh, with our pleasures, with our drugs and our alcohol, We think that if we just put God out of our minds, that God will put us out of his mind. But this is not the case. This is not the case. It says in uh, verse 9, you will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Jesus warned his listeners about the fires of hell numerous times. And here we have another warning. Their offspring will be destroyed. Immediately, I think of abortion here. Um, And indeed, the judgments of God are severe. How can we not think of um, abortion when we think of uh, verse 10? Their offspring you will destroy from the earth. 
and their descendants from among the sons of men. But parents, there are many of you here, take care, consider this. Uh, You think you can shield your children from your sin? Back in, when I was in the pastor's college, I remember reading uh, um, a book by Charles Spurgeon uh, that was written to, to candidates to be, uh, to men training to become pastors. And one of the things that really stuck with me is that one of his pieces of advice was that your best tool is yourself. You know, you can, a pastor, someone who's a leader, um, can come up with all kinds of, of you know, management styles and uh, programs and all kinds of things to, to help the process of leading others. But there's no way to guard people, to hide from who you actually are. You know, we think because we're hypocrites, we think because we're sneaky, that we can, we can hide it, that we can have our secret sins in, 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 in secret and that we can present a good face um, and that these sins won't find us out, but it's, it's foolish, right? I think, um, I think we fall prey to this a lot, and we're, we're hypocritical about this very often. Um, and I think it applies the same thing to parents. You know, parents, we think that, uh, that if we just get this program right, uh, that our kids will be fine, even though we ourselves are faithless or selfish, um, but parents, we must take a care of our own souls because there's nothing that can shield our children from us. Does that make sense? Uh, we have to take a care of our own souls that, that we might have something to give to our children. Uh, we want to draw our children to Jesus Christ. We want to teach them about Jesus Christ, and so we ourselves must actually love him, right? There's no shortcuts there. Verse 11, though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. Wicked men devised a plot against Jesus, right? Terrible plot, betrayal, death, murder. Now, did it succeed? Well, he was crucified, right? And yet, um, it didn't succeed because God raised them from the dead and Jesus was ultimately vindicated. God is in the business of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Many times, it looks as if everything is lost. It's hopeless. And God raises up his church yet again to, uh, to, to lead people to him. We think, you know, again, a criticism might be of me. Well, no one devises a plot against Jesus anymore, you know. Maybe he, he was plotted against, but, you know, no one's plotting against us, right? This verse has no application to us. Again, I think we must begin to think like David. We are the church. This is the church. If we don't believe that we are the church, what are we doing here? right? It's, it's pointless. We might as well pack up and go home. And of course, we're not the only church, obviously. There's churches all over the globe. We, the church with a capital C, uh, hope to believe that we are Christ's bride. And are there many plots against her all over the world? Of course, you have to answer the question yes, right? Um, even, even in this town, 
Are there plots against the church of Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. Why would we act as if uh, the church does not have enemies? Of course it does. Now maybe I didn't need to make that case to you. Maybe you already believe that the church has enemies and maybe you're actually tempted to despair because things look dark. It feels like things are going to hell in a handbasket. Well, then take encouragement from this verse. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. As I said, God is in the business of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, and we have no reason to despair with God on our side. Their plots will not succeed. Now, perhaps the most vivid verse in this passage is verse 12. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim your bowstrings at their faces. It's the most vivid, I think, because it's the most easy to picture. I can actually imagine a warrior aiming his bowstring in the face of somebody else. And imagine being that person. You know, you're up short and you see someone pointing their bowstring right at you. Uh, what is your feeling immediately in that instance? It's complete vulnerability, right? It's like the... the uh, in the movies, when the bad guy, they have that shot at the very end when the bad guy's about to get nailed and he's like, realizes it and then he's gone, right? This is the image that God paints for us in verse 12, that his enemies will be, uh, be destroyed. And there's no armor to protect. It's just sheer vulnerability. There's nothing they can do about it. Now, before I end today, I want to mention... Uh, I want to talk for a minute about this, this marshal, this talk of war in this, in this Psalm 21. Does all this talk of war and battle in this psalm mean that we as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, should be like Muslims and raise armies so that we can take physical land from the infidels? No, right? David, in David's time, God had given his sign of approval on a particular nation and he had given them explicit command to conquer neighboring nations, right? So, that, so it's different. But this time, it's different. God has put his special seal of approval on the church, but he has broken down the barrier wall between the nations. And I love the passage from uh, Lead On, O King Eternal. It says, it's a song we often sing here, For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. We fight, but not as the world fights. God will take vengeance on the wicked, and we wait for his vengeance, right? God will be the one to take vengeance on his enemies. In the meantime, we do want God to be praised throughout the world. This is why we send missionaries. This is why we pray for our community, for our nation. It is faithless to simply sit back and accept as Christians that everything is going to hell in a handbasket and we might as well just watch TV as, as it happens. Right? This is faithless. This is not the response of Christians, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom come, comes. This is our work. We pray for the nations. We pray that God, in the meantime, would make his enemies his friends. Now, this psalm ends with the only proper response to the power, to a display of the power of God, and that is songs of praise. 
And so my question to you this week is, what are you going to praise? What are you going to hope for? Will you praise the power of God or are you going to settle for praising your favorite athlete? Let's not settle. Let's praise the power of God together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are great and glorious. You are powerful and you are in the business of making your enemies your friends. I pray, Father, that we would go about that work not with fear and anxiety and timidity but with faith and with joy and with with power given from above. Help us, Father, to do this. Flame our, cause our hearts to be filled with love for you and eagerness at this work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.